great sitting there. Okay, guys, how are you today? How are you? How are you? Doing okay? Okay, good. Good. Are you? You're good? Perfect. That's awesome. So somebody tell me, what is baptism? Baptism means that you trust God with all of your heart. Well, that's, that's pretty darn good. Um, what else happens? What happens during baptism? Um, uh, the person who's bathing you um, dunks you under the water and then um, says something and then God removes all your sin. Interesting. So sin is involved. The person who's bathing you dunks you under the water. I like that. That's a good description. In the church hot tub over there is what they call that. So what, you know, at the end of the services in here, you guys aren't in here, but we have communion. What's communion about? Communion? Any guesses? You know? What do you think that's about? That's uh, uh, a... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. See, that's probably closer to the answer. What do you got, Summit? That that Jesus got on the cross. That's why we have to. That's why we have communion every single time. Yeah, that's interesting. It is definitely related to the cross. You're going to talk about that today, as a matter of fact. And then, uh, why do we sing songs in church? Why do we sing songs? Why do we sing songs? Somebody make a guess. Next week, we're going to have an affirmation class. Not, how many of you went through confirmation when you were younger? Yeah, so we do here an affirmation class because it just affirms the things that we teach and what we do. I talked about three things that we regularly do all the time in church, and our kiddos need to kind of know what do we do and why do we do that. And also, we're going to talk about the Trinity, and we're going to talk about the Bible. Like, what is the Bible? Why do we believe it? And then we're going to talk about faith. And these guys are going to learn. Some of them are going to actually be here next week for that. So that happens next week. And I thought we'd get a, a good start anyways this week. So let me pray for you. And you guys can go to class. Love you, Lord. And uh, bless these guys. Fill them with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, stand. No running. You can go to your classes. So third through sixth grade next week. Third graders, nobody younger than that. It's a little bit harder to connect to the stuff. And nobody typically older than that, although the parents always tell me that they learn things in this. So the parents, you're welcome to come, participate. We do some fun activities. So, for instance, for the faith thing, how many of you understand faith completely, by the way? Anybody get that all the way? Yeah, we're still working on it, that's for sure. We use the chair illustration. But what we do is we play musical chairs. And have a great fun time with the chairs. And then we talk about, hey, so why did you run and jump into that chair and know that you could trust it, right? So we use that as one of the illustrations. So we'll do a bunch of different things. We color eggs. We use an egg with the three parts, and it's all egg, but they're all different. And we use that for the Trinity, to talk about the Trinity. But we color, and it's, it's a lot of fun. So that's next week. Immediately following this service, if you have kids or grandkids to be a part of. In the first service, Mark said I should probably come and learn my theology. Yeah, you really should. I think you should. <laughs> That's on the back. Also on the back, for those of you that are interested, right after church today, we're having a, an inquirer's class. Um, right after this service, in the comments, lunch is provided. For those of you that are curious why we do the things we do, what do we believe, how are we organized, 
all that sort of stuff. So this is a time we do it uh, three or four times a year for new people uh, and people that have maybe been here a long time but have never known why we do what we do as a church. Okay, um, one other thing which is not on here is when I first came here for the first couple of years, uh, the superintendent of schools um, was a member of our church. She's since transferred to Colorado Springs. And so she and I had several coffees and conversations and I asked her, I asked Heidi, what, uh, what are ways that we could serve the uh, school? And she said, one of the big ways is honestly just pray. And I think that's even become more and more important. I mean, you guys, you know what's happening around our country in our own county with schools. And um, this coming Saturday, many of you know Trish Berry. She's not here. She was here in the first service. She's organizing a prayer time this coming Saturday at 10 o'clock. You could either be in the high school parking lot or the middle school parking lot, either one. They have people at both to just take time and pray for the schools. I think that's a really, really good idea. So um, be thinking about that this Saturday at 10 o'clock. It would be really great to have people out there to pray. Okay, let's, um, let's start with the Lord's Prayer. So everybody stand up. We're going to say the Lord's Prayer. We've been saying it every Sunday uh, during Lent. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, pause just for a second. We say it so quickly sometimes. Think about those words. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here as it is in heaven. Is that a great prayer? That's a great prayer. We're going to talk about that today. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we, um, we come before you and with, uh, Lord, with pride and joy and gratitude that we have, you've, been, you've given us the privilege of being called your children. Thank you, Lord. We just mentioned some of the crazy stuff going on in our schools with shooters and all that. And Lord, um, we so desperately need your help. We confess to you that we are a broken people and uh, we're not sure how to, f- to fix it. And it's a, such a controversy in our country right now. Lord, uh, please come and, and help us resolve these problems. Father, we continue to lift up Marie. It was so good to see her in the first service. Uh, Father, um, thank you that the medicine is working, her cancer is subsiding. Lord, we're so grateful for her and for Tim. And Lord, we realize that uh, she has dodged a bullet, that borrowing your intervention and the work of the medicine, she would be on the edge of the cliff right now. So God, we just pray, however you choose is up to you. We just pray that you would heal her because we need her. We've seen her and Tim's faithfulness over the years. We've seen the way they reach. Uh, they've just reached so many people for you and help them. So, Lord, um, just let this medicine work or heal her directly. I'll let you decide that. But we just pray that you would. Help us today, Lord, as we uh, work to answer another question, a very complex one in your word. Help us today to understand it. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. So third Sunday of Lent. 
Let me remind you again what the purpose of Lent is all about, why the church even started celebrating it. It's to help prepare you to create a runway, if you will, to create a journey over several weeks to prepare you for Easter. And we do that through several things which we're encouraging you to participate in. One is simply prayer. Simply prayer. Inside the bulletin, there's a there's always a prayer list of people that need things, that are hurting, that are sick. And so take this with you, and, and throughout the week, just stop and pray. And uh, just spend time with the Lord. We are also encouraging you to do what the ancients called mortifying the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And what that looks like is every time you're on the verge of sinning, maybe getting angry, maybe lying, maybe whatever, you, you fill in the blank, you stop yourself and you say, by God's grace and strength, I'm not going to do that. That's putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And that's something that we practice daily over and over again. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. Talked about repentance of sins. We give you an opportunity often before communion to repent. Repentance is a reflection of the heart. Um, Have you ever met people who are not very uh, humble, not very sorry, not very repentant? They're kind of hard and cold and harsh, right? Repentance is necessary because it softens the heart. There's nothing absolutely wrong with just saying, God, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And uh, it reflects the heart and a growing humility. And the Lord just embraces you with warmth. That's what happens. Repentance should be a part of our lives. Self-denial is another part of it. But not self-denial for the sake of self-denial. Self-denial through focusing on the cross. Our natural tendency is to think about ourselves. We're actually going to talk more about that today. Is to think about ourselves. And so an important part of preparing for Easter, the day that changed everything, is to practice self-denial through focusing on the cross. That's why we're spending so much time week after week talking about the uh, the cross and what went wrong. Our last series was titled that, What Went Wrong? And we, we talked about major issues that the Old Testament ended with a big question mark. And we didn't answer those questions. Now we're doing it in this series, The Revolutionary Rescue. Um... So today we're going to talk about the restoration of justice. We've already talked about the restoration of our vocation and worship. We're now kingdom of priests. We're a royal priesthood. We are to, uh, to steward the world and relationships on behalf of the Lord. We are to act as priests and to love one another. And so that's our responsibility is a kingdom of priests. We talked about uh, the start of a new world, the new creation. We proclaim the mighty deeds of God. So our life now, because we have the Holy Spirit, we are predisposed to begin to move toward Christ. That's natural now for us. The Holy Spirit's nudging us, pushing, occasionally shoving, sometimes kicking, but we're moving toward Christ. And what that means is, as we move toward Christ, our humanity becomes more authentic and genuine and true. We love in better ways. We, uh, we show more gratitude. We're more affectionate towards people. We're more humble. Those are all the things we're made for. We're not made for this hardness that sin has brought about. And so as we move toward Christ, that's what that, happens. That's what that means. We're being, our, those human capacities are being restored. When you get stuck, that's usually because there's sin in the way. Sin is just simply an obstacle that keeps you from moving to Christ. That's what it is. And so that's why it's important to practice mortifying the flesh, saying no or saying yes 
whatever the appropriate answer is. So if you find yourself stuck in your spiritual journey, that means there's something in the way. That's what we call sin. Because your natural movement is toward Christ now. And that's what it means to have our vocation restored and our worship restored. We proclaim the deeds that he's done and we're transformed into his image. So this time, today, we're going to talk about justice. We did do a sermon in the last series on the loss of justice. It's clear to us, almost all of us, that we do not understand justice. We have a problem with that, don't we? It doesn't matter where you are, in your family, in your work environment, in the school system, in our church, in government. There's issues. We can't quite figure it out, can we? What justice looks like. And it's true all around the world. All around the world. And so, we don't know how to do just very well, do we? We really don't. We really don't. From a biblical perspective, justice is the intention of God to set the world right. That's what it means. Very simply. His purpose, his intention, his will to make it all right. Fix everything that's broken. That's what justice is. It's captured by the word righteousness. Righteousness reveals the justice of God. Because everything is being made right. It's central to the Christian faith. And therefore it should define how we engage the world around us. But we're not very good at it. Um... In fact, we've tended to create a pendulum approach to justice. We either have it or we don't. That's how we think about it. So we have created within our churches a longing for Christ to come back so we can finally have justice, right? Because it's clear we don't have justice. And um, I'm going to work on changing that today. I'm going to work on changing it. A couple of things have to... We have to change our thinking in a couple of areas. One is that we looked at the parable of the vineyard workers last week, Matthew 20. And we got out of that. God's idea of justice is very countercultural. It doesn't fit our idea at all. That's where the worker that worked an hour got the same wage as the one who worked eight hours. And it really goes against the grain for us to see that. It doesn't seem fair, but in God it, it does. So part of it is learning to think theologically, to think a little healthier about what actually justice is all about. Justice, true justice goes against culture. There's no question about it. True justice is very, very countercultural. We don't know how to do it. And so we have the sense that justice is not here. We don't have any justice. And yet Paul, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, argued that God's righteousness, his justice, has come to those who believe. So let's read Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. These are the opening words in chapter 1 of Romans, which explain what Romans is all about. For in the gospel, the good news about what Christ has done to reach the whole world, in this good news, the righteousness or justice of God is revealed. So Paul's arguing that the justice of God has already been revealed. Wow. Did we miss it? It's a righteousness or a justice that is by faith from first to last. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Did we miss it? How on earth, literally, how on earth has justice already come? What does that look like? 
Well, in order to understand that, let's go back and take a look again at the ancient world because uh, if you understand the whole shame and honor context, it's, by the way, it's part of our culture as well. They just had different rules for how to administer it, but it's still there. What we call shame and honor, the dynamics ruled society in the ancient world and it rules our world today as well. It's also known as challenge repost. Somebody challenges you and you respond. So you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and you get angry. That's shame and honor. You respond to the challenge. You rise up to the challenge. We know how to do that very well. Spouse says something to you you don't like. We know exactly how to rise up to the challenge, don't we? We know how to push buttons. Even if we do it in Christian love, we know how to do it subtly. We're very good at vengeance. That's the curse. That's the curse. We know, we know how to do that. And so when Christ came, that was the core dynamic that he broke in culture. One challenges our honor and we are bound to defend it or become subservient to the challenger. And so the question is, how on earth, literally, did God's justice come and what does it look like? I'm going to read a verse that we've read several times out of 2 Corinthians. We'll probably read it several more times because it gives us a lot of insight into this. How is justice restored in the world today? 2 Corinthians 5.14 For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, self-denial, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We live for Christ. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, although we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Our natural tendency is to define people according to their failure and their sin. They're a drug addict. They're an alcoholic. They're an adulterer. Right? What Paul is arguing here, and I agree, is that that's inappropriate in the kingdom. If you're a child of God, we should not define you by your sin, your brokenness, and failure. We should define you by the new standard of the kingdom. What would church look like if we defined each other that way? Instead of a drug addict... Maybe you still struggle with drugs. Instead of an alcoholic, maybe you still struggle with alcoholism. Whatever it is that you struggle with. Instead of looking at each other that way, what if we say, you're a child of God and I see the glory of God radiating from you. I see the love that you showed to people. It's interesting that one of the great warning passages in Hebrews, he says, God is not unfaithful. He will not forget the love that you have shown his people. He won't forget That's how he defines you, by the kingdom. We no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards, by their sin. That's not how we think of people. We need to change our thinking. And it's a lot of work to do that because we're not very good at it, just to be honest with you. 
But he goes on from there. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're talking about our vocation, our humanity. This is what we were created for as humans, to be ministers of reconciliation, to be the peacemakers in the world. Namely, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal directly through us. You've heard me say there's no billboard out there. God is glorious. No, no, no. He makes his appeal through us. We are the ones that deliver it to a lost and broken world. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, in order to begin to understand how justice is being restored in the world today, we need to understand the purpose of the cross. And look what he just said. He died for us all. We are no longer to live for ourselves, but for Christ, which means living for others. We're now a royal priesthood. We reign with Christ, which means we demonstrate stewardship in relationships. We talk about creation care. We also need to talk about culture care. Our job is to care for our culture and steward it well and love people well. Culture care. It means we're learning to view people differently. It means understanding that our vocation has been both renewed and changed, reconciled and reconciling. We are to be the experts in bringing reconciliation. We need to have the courage to say to our friends, is everything okay in your marriage? feels like something's a little off. When we lived in Germany as missionaries, one of my best friends came over. We took the train to Romania soon after uh, Ceausescu was executed. We wanted to see what it was like. And so he came over three, two or three days early, spent time with Nancy and me and the kids. And we got on the train, and uh, we're a couple hours out of the train station in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, on the train. And he said, out of the clear blue, he said, you know, um, you're pretty harsh with Nancy. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I've been around you guys for the last two or three days, and she said this, and you responded this way. She said this, and you responded this way. She said this, and you responded this way. You're pretty harsh with her. And I said, why are you, why are you bringing this up now? And he said, because you're going to spend the next two weeks with me, and I'd rather you beat me up than her. That's a friend. And I've been thankful all these years. I got back and I asked Nancy, here's what he told me, is it true? She said, you don't know the half of it. It was true. And it started me thinking differently because somebody had the courage to step in and say, is everything okay? You don't have the right to privacy. That's an American cultural right. In fact, the honest truth is, you don't have privacy. We all form opinions about you. If communication specialists are right, only 10 to 12% of our communication comes through what the words that we use. The rest is nonverbal. You can't hide what you really think and feel about people. You either love people or you don't. And you can tell the difference, can't you? We all live in a fishbowl. What does it look like to have that kind of courage? When I was in the doctoral program, um, I... My very first class was another student's last class. 
It didn't take me but about five minutes to hate the guy. He was arrogant, obnoxious, conceited, know-it-all, extremely obese. He didn't even smell good. And so after about three weeks, I went to one of the professors and I said, I want to talk to you about Bill. And he goes, oh yeah, we all know Bill. You ever had that happen? Mention somebody's name, they go, yeah, we know about that. I cannot think of anything more embarrassing in life than to get to the end of life and realize that you're not about me and no one had the courage to tell me. So I said, and he's my advisor, I said, so you already know about Bill. What did he say when you talked to him? What do you mean? Well, you're a Christian. I'm sure you wouldn't talk to him. I haven't said a word. And I said, yeah, that makes me not trust you. Why? Because I wonder what you're thinking about me that you're not willing to, you don't have the courage to tell me. And he said, well, I'm not thinking anything about you. And I said, yeah, but I can no longer believe you now. This is my advisor. I I like living on the edge. (laughs) I'm going to go talk to Bill. So I went and had a conversation with Bill. lasted about five minutes, maybe three, maybe one. Basically, leave me alone, get out of my face. Okay. So the next semester, they needed a Greek prof, and they he's now a PhD candidate, so they wanted him to teach a class. And so on Tuesday, he had 30 students. On Thursday, he had four. 26 dropped. The class canceled. Next semester, they wanted him to teach again. I said, I think it's a mistake, but we did it. 30 students on Tuesday, 6 students on Thursday. And that was enough students for the class to go. So the class went. Never saw Bill again. 10 years go by. I'm at Evangelical Theological Society meetings. Um, and thousands of scholars and pastors get together. Walking down the concourse, you know how you do that dance with people? And I look up and it's Bill. But only now he's real thin. He's dressed very nicely and he's got this big grin on his face. And he said, hi, Jim. Do you remember me? I said, I do remember you. About that time, a lady walks up, knocked down, dead gorgeous. Just absolutely gorgeous. I thought she was African-American. She was actually Jamaican. Uh, very dark skin, just beautiful. Walks up, gives him a kiss. Now, he's a pasty white guy. Gives him a kiss and says, hey, honey. And he said, uh, this is Dr. Howard. And she turns around and starts laughing and gives me a big hug. I have no idea what's going on. I'm completely befuddled. And she thought that was hysterical. And she said, do you remember that class where he, uh, uh, it went from 30 students down to six? I said, I do remember it. And she said, I was one of the students in that class. I stayed in there and he started hitting on me, which he shouldn't have done, but Christians are human too. Okay, so here's this guy that's, you know, he's hitting on her and she doesn't want anything to do with him. So she tries everything she can to be polite. And she finally, and you're listening to this story, grinning from ear to ear. And she finally says, so I finally looked at him. I said, look, I don't like you. You're arrogant. You're obnoxious. You're conceited. You're overweight. You don't even smell nice. And I said, you said that? She said, yeah. She said, his eyes filled with tears. And he said, I know. I know. You're the second person to tell me that. And I don't want to be that way, but I don't know how to be different. And she said, I thought he at least deserved my friendship. They fell in love, got married. He's pastoring a church in another state. Now I see him every year. I can't imagine what it would be like to get to the end of life and realize everybody knew something about me, but nobody had courage to say it. We are reconcilers. We should be willing to say to our friends, is everything okay in your marriage? I, and I, my intuition says you're struggling. 
And I've done that with some of you. That is our vocation to be reconcilers. It means viewing our lives very differently. We are Christ's ambassadors. It means bringing God's righteousness or judgment out into the world. That's what it means. So God's justice has come. If you care to live by faith. You ever wonder why Jesus chose Passover? To make his stand? Why he chose Passover to force the issue with the Jewish leadership, knowing he'd get him crucified. He had 365 days to choose, and he chose one to choose from. He chose the one, Passover. Passover was the festival in which his fellow Jews were celebrating the exodus from Egypt all those years ago, but they were praying that God would do it again, but on a grander scale. They were under Roman oppression, and they wanted exodus. They remembered... They remembered that the, uh, the curses of Deuteronomy 30, when God sent them into exile, had in fact been carried out. And why? Because they were in sin. Every prophet of the Old Testament said that, that indictment, you are in sin. And I will not bring you back from exile until I have forgiven your sin. Well, they wandered back, but they recognized that their sin had not been forgiven yet because the glory had not returned to the temple. They were still in exile, even though they're living in the land. Is there a better festival than Passover? You remember the story of Passover? The night that God, that the Moses led them out from underneath slavery to the Egyptians. They took the animal and they sacrificed it, put the blood on the doorpost, and God passed over that house and did not take their firstborn like he did the Egyptians. They celebrated that every year. Is there a better festival to announce the coming of God's kingdom and that he was permanently passing over the sins of his people than Passover? But it's far bigger than that. It's far bigger than that. We're going to read a couple of passages. One is Colossians. We've read it before. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He forgave us our sins. There it is. That's what allows the exodus to come to an end. And a new exodus to begin. These sins which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. So, not only did he die on Passover, but he, he overthrew, he disarmed all the dark powers that enslaved us. That's another part of it. That's what he did with Egypt. Through the gods. They were enslaved. And he overturned them. Well, not only that, but he reconstituted his people. We've already read this one. If anyone is in Christ, they are part of the new creation. He reconstituted his people. Not only that, he returned his glory to the temple. John chapter 1. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. Who came from the father full of grace and truth. The glory came back. But this time to a spiritual temple. I'm setting up the next two Sundays. Next Sunday is we're going to look at the restoration of the temple. And the Sunday after that. Mark's going to take us through the restoration of glory. His glory came back. When Jesus appeared. 
the glory of the Lord returned. Glory of the Lord returned. So true Passover means freedom from slavery to sin. This is the whole argument of Romans 6, using the language out of the Exodus imagery. Just as he brought the Israelites out of slavery to the Egyptians, he brings us out of slavery to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We don't have to sin. So therefore, Paul's obvious question is, why do you keep doing it? You can stop. You're never going to be perfect, but you can start working that way. That's why Paul cries out in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is what communion is all about. He is our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. So while they're in the temple killing the lamb, the, the, the lamb representative of the whole nation, the true Passover lamb is out on the cross, dying. Dying for our sins. The kingdom has indeed come. Uh, quoting Tom Wright, he says, he has launched a new revolution. It's interesting how he taught his disciples this message, especially right at the very end. He didn't give them a new model. He didn't give them a new theory. He didn't give them a new metaphor. All the metaphors of the Old Testament still, in, uh, still work. Temple, sacrifice, priesthood, right? Passover. He didn't even give them a new metaphor. What he gave them was a meal. We call it the Last Supper. He gave them a meal. A Passover meal. He gave them an experience. Honestly, that's why we finish every Sunday together celebrating communion. I personally don't care if you remember anything I say up here. But I want you to remember the experience of being together in faith. That's what I want you to remember. He gave them a meal. Whereas the festival of Passover focused on a great event hundreds of years in the past, the meal, the Last Supper, shifted their focus to look forward to what was about to happen the very next day. So they ate together on Thursday night and all of history changed on Friday. Got completely redefined. I'm going to read, I'm reading a book by Tom Wright called The Day the Revolution Began. I'm going to read a couple of quotes from him to help you grasp this idea. The Passover and the Exodus themes cluster together in an almost bewildering and overdetermined fashion. The fulfillment of ancient promises. The liberation from slavery. The crossing of the Red Sea. The coming of God himself in the pillar of cloud and fire, the promise of inheritance. All of these in parables, healings, promises, and warnings formed part of Jesus' public proclamation and private teaching. He represents all of that in the Old Testament. Now they come together at a great moment in time. He goes on further, at the center of the whole picture, we do not find a wrathful God bent on killing someone, demanding blood. That's a pagan understanding of the Bible. No, something very different, very wonderful. Instead, we find the image of the covenant-keeping God who takes the full force of sin onto himself. Sacrifice. Sacrifice because of a deep love and compassion. This is true justice. We tend to think of justice as you get what you deserve. No, God has redefined justice. Justice is when you get what you don't deserve. 
love. Love and sacrifice. Hopefully now you can see where we're headed with this. The Last Supper was an acted story. It was a story that was acted out, if you will. The towel, the washing of the feet, the sharing of the meal together. He taught them by doing it. And he even said, you don't understand these things now, but after I'm gone, you will. And so communion is an act of service. It's an acted story. On Easter Sunday, Christians became counter-cultural people. That's what happened. On that day, when Christ rose from the dead, they became counter-cultural people. I'm going to read to you Romans 12, and just listen to these words. The beginning of the passage, by the way, in Romans 12, is be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You have to think differently about what we're about. Romans 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Think about our culture here. You don't even have to think about the first century culture. Think about our culture with this language. How many people do this? Right? Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Boy, our leadership and all of our governments could learn something about this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, uh, it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In this In doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. That's a quote from Proverbs. This is God's intention all along. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's the word for victory. It's a verb for victory. Be victorious by overcoming evil. On Sunday, we became countercultural people. We began to move in the opposite direction of counter, of culture. That's what that means. Starts with transformation. Our transformation is rooted in a healthy understanding of the cross. And it means living counterculturally within our own world. That's how we bring the justice of God into our world is by being different. When it says the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He's revealed through our lives. Justice is revealed through us because we do what's right. Imagine a world where love is sincere. Imagine a world characterized by genuine hope, patience, sincere prayer. Imagine a world where we live in harmony with each other. A world where we are at peace with one another. Where we no longer rise up in vengeance against our enemies. This is true justice. Paul was right. Justice has come. It comes in the way we live our lives. We're getting ready to celebrate communion. When we celebrate communion together, we are living out the acted story of the Bible. That's what we're doing.
We're celebrating the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of the blood, the cup. We're celebrating the new covenant, also the cup. We are linking ourselves to the true Passover lamb, Jesus. And to every Christian around the world and every Christian that's come before us, we're linking ourselves together. We are declaring that the powers of evil have been overcome and disarmed, and we are declaring that we are now free. We no longer enslaved to sin. They can take your life, but they can't take your experience. They can't take your faith. We are free. We are the people through whom the Passover happened, but we're also the people who brings Passover to a wider world. In other words, communion becomes a picture of what our lives are all about, living for Christ. Now you see why we talk so much about how important your lives are and the cross. All this happened on Good Friday. It all happened on Good Friday. And they are all scratching their heads because they didn't get it. I love the way the Gospels all throughout there have the language. We remembered after he rose from the dead that he said these things. Because that's when it became real to them was when he appeared. So I said last week, to honor a shamed criminal means going against the state to cost you your life. The resurrection was proof and it was what gave them that courage. We have seen the risen Lord Jesus. We don't care what you do to us. You can't take that away. You can take our lives, but you can't take away the experience. And they began to proclaim Christ. They were bold and they didn't care. Take our lives. Go ahead. By the way, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, that when you offer, and we're getting ready to ask the ushers to come take an offering, when you make an offering, that you are making a confession of the gospel of Christ. That's the word he uses. You are confessing to your belief in the gospel when you give. That's why I've told you, just don't put money in there. Just don't put money in. Really stop and say, thank you, God, for blessing me so that I can give some of this to be a blessing to others. That's an expression of this good news, of justice. It's making the world right. So offering is just as much a part of justice as everything we do. How you live your life is really important. It's really important. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for your blessing in our lives and for just loving us so deeply. Thank you for teaching us what true justice actually looks like because we really have a distorted view of it. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. Pastors, to come and take the offering. Again, thank you for your generosity. You bless us.